The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, good. Thank you, uh, Graham. I'm going to provide a, a uh, high-level overview of, of this issue, um, why we're even talking about it, actually. Uh, with respect to the title, the 2 degrees C over pre-industrial is the level of warming that uh, international leaders have set as where you would sort of transition into dangerous. There are quite a number of us who think that's probably too high, but that's the official one. And so the, the question is, what does it take to try and stay uh, within that? Um, let's see what's work Go, go, what's happening? Go to sleep? What did you do to it, Graham? Let me try it again and we'll see what goes here. No, it's not you, it's me. Uh, well, I'll try this. How about that? It worked before. Oh, it worked just before. There we go. Okay, we're going. Okay. All right, we'll go. Wake up, computer. Um, let me just say something to start about terminology. Uh, geoengineering has been a term that's uh, used a lot, sometimes with a hyphen and sometimes not. But um, geoengineering is really a pretty broad term about engineering the planet. And so there are some intentional things we've actually been doing for a long time to engineer our planet for the benefit of humans. You can think of agricultural production of food. During the nuclear winter study in the 1980s, there was an estimate of how much the nat what the population of the nat uh, could be supported by the natural world in the absence of the global economy, and I think it was 200 million, so somehow we're up at near 7 billion. Um, certainly providing water, uh, you wouldn't live here in the population in Southern California without water. Um, there's some unintentional things we've been doing, air and water pollution, and uh, people are starting to worry a lot about the nitrogen and phosphor cycle, and global climate change from fossil fuel emissions is an engineering of the planet. It's unintentional, it's inadvertent, but it's happening. Um, Okay, so I try and talk about uh, climate engineering instead, which is in something intentional we're thinking of doing, a large-scale modification of the natural environment. Some people say global, but let's say large-scale for the moment. And the intent is to moderate or counterbalance somehow human-induced climate change. Uh, so now you can go back in... Um, um, history, actually, to the 1960s, and people were talking about re-engineering the planet. It was sort of the optimistic days of the nuclear reactor could provide free energy, electricity for everybody. Um, and there were, there were schemes proposed for melting the, uh, melting the Arctic to get at its resources and things. So there were ones to try and change the planet away from where it is. We're really trying to moderate the climate and moderate climate change and keep it where we are. And so it's actually a different kind of thing. There are two sort of fundamental categories of approaches. One is carbon dioxide removal, so get at the cause of the warming by taking carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere somehow. And the other is solar radiation management. So you're trapping heat with the greenhouse gases, so you want to take away some extra amount of heat. Um, and so I'll get to those. But what I'm going to talk about through this uh, introduction uh, I'm sort of asked to cover is why in the world are we even considering this? What, what has gotten us to the point where we're going to think about advertently trying to control the climate? Um, 
so one is to sort of look at the incentives and see how climate is changing, which I'll go through really quickly. Then what can you do and what can you expect from mitigation? Just cutting off emissions, which is what the main subject of international negotiations about. And then I'll go so through some of the conceptual approach in the conceptual way the approaches for these two kinds of things, looking both at counterbalancing global climate change and then are there some ways to try and moderate or affect regional or specific impacts. So the world faces rather a dilemma right now. Uh, fossil fuels provide over 80% of the world's energy, sustain the standard of living. You can't just sort of give it up. And so there's a huge infrastructure in place as well. It provides energy in a wonderful way that other forms often cannot or we're having to find ways to overcome. But then fossil fuels also have major impacts on the environment. Some of them we can deal with, like air pollution has been dealt with by going to more efficient engines and cleaning things up, uh, acidification of precipitation by reducing uh, sulfur dioxide. But some of these things are going to be very hard to uh, deal with. Climate change could become, what is said, dangerous. That is, you would spark some large, rapid change, uh, perhaps in sea level rise, perhaps for permafrost melting or something. And CO2 is also causing ocean acidification, which is a potential major threat. So we have a dilemma of how to deal with this. Um, so just very quickly through science, this is the Mauna Loa curve of what's happening to the CO2 concentration. It's going up at sort of an accelerating rate. Um, one of the things I, for scale that I like to point out is these seasonal oscillations go up or down seven or eight parts per million. If, this, if Mauna Loa represents the average for the atmosphere the conditions in the northern hemisphere as a whole, and, you mo and we think that's true, the southern hemisphere sort of separated off um, on a time scale of six months or so. Um, if you multiply by the volume of the northern hemisphere times seven or eight parts per million here, you get seven or eight billion tons of carbon. Basically, a part per million in a hemisphere is pretty close to being a billion tons of carbon. And so when we talk about emissions, we're talking about billions of tons of carbon. Global carbon dioxide emissions now are something like 8 billion tons of carbon. So it's the seasonal greening of the whole northern hemisphere that we're talking about here that, that you would have to do something about. It doesn't go up that much each year because half of it mixes to the southern hemisphere and about half is taken out by the oceans and biosphere. But if you multiply the part per million increase by about four, you get pretty close to what the emissions are. Um, oops, I'm sorry. Um, so IPCC has put together this chart of forcings of what we've done so far. You see the CO2 is the long-lived gas and has a very uh, positive term. There's a bunch of other gases, methane uh, to remember, and ozone. Remember these two because I'm going to come back to these later. Um, you have some negative influence from aerosols right now. These are uncertain but pretty clearly negative. But the net effect is positive. Um, one of the sort of unfortunate things in the negotiations or happenstance things is these other gases and the sulfates about cancel out, so CO2 is about the same as the net, and so there's this view that CO2 is the issue. And the negotiators focus on CO2, they sort of say, well, CO2 equivalent, but they really focus on CO2, um, and I'll come back to that. So I think I've made all those points. So this is sort of the temperature record going forward. These are the annual values of the Blue Crosses, and these are decadal averages from NOAA. You see since the 1970s a pretty steady increase. 
Um, there are some kind of unusual things. It was cool in the late 19th century. Um, there is this period during World War II that was warm. Uh, it's been talked about as a peak and go down. Some people say that was solar. Uh, it, given it's all during World War II, it should make a scientist sort of suspicious. And I think people are starting to realize now that the fraction of measurements coming from the ocean uh, became mainly U.S. Navy ships, and they have a different calibration than some of the other ships, so we may get that corrected. Um, there have been some detection attribution studies trying to understand. First, we see that there's been a clear change. What does it do to? The, the black is observations. The blue is running with just volcanic and solar, so just natural forcings. They do pretty well in the early part of the century. They don't do well at all at the end. Um, if you add in the anthropogenic and the pink, you, you get an explanation for what's happening here uh, pretty well. What IPCC um, fourth assessment did, which was so interesting, was do that on a regional basis. Um, and so you see on none of the continents here does the, do the blue, so just the natural forcings match the observations. The observations are all within this band of pink. And realize because of chaos, you're going to get a band. You're not going to be able to predict year by year kind of things. What's interesting to me is if you look for the total, uh, you look at the land, okay, there's good agreement for global land. You look for the ocean, it's off. Where is it off? It's off during World War II over the oceans. Um, so those measurements, it makes you wonder about them, uh, the global sort of side. But it seems like a pretty good uh, agreement. IPCC, with the results of time, has become more and more confident in its statements. So we're now up to warming of climate is unequivocal and most, meaning most, and some would say more than most, because solar was actually decreasing a little bit. Uh, the observed increase over the last few decades is very likely, which means greater than 90% due to anthropogenic factors. Um, now, it's important to understand people in this great debate in Washington make it out as IPCC as a super green organization. Uh, there's no way that an organization that gets in a, a unanimous agreement of 190 organizations is cutting edge and saying what's happening. So scientific community is ahead of that. Okay, so here we go on emissions for the future, looking to ahead into the future. This is sort of the IPCC scenarios that came out in 2000 and then the emissions that uh, we've been having and these are sort of projected upward. Um, this is this billion tons of carbon, so the seasonal cycle of greening of the northern hemisphere is somewhere up here around eight or something. Um, and what you see is this, the emissions seem to be going up with things like a recession or something maybe at toward the upper part of the scenarios because there's a greater reliance on coal occurring. Um, then there's this sort of go through the CO2 concentration from the Vostok ice core. So 800,000 years we've been having it oscillate between glacial conditions and non-glacial between 200 and 300. You're, we're headed, we're here now and we're headed to somewhere very high and there's the potential to go higher than this. There's plenty of coal and oil shale uh, around to, to try and go higher than this. Uh, so there's a potential for a major change. IPCC put out these, these uh, plots for the sort of consensus projections for the the uh, future for a low, middle, and high scenario out into the into the future. Um, let me just say that those are the numbers. They sound large, but realize those are from the year 2000, so you have to add another six-tenths or so to get to this. So if you add six-tenths this and you say, I've got to stay below two degrees, 
That means I want to stay here, so even the low emission scenario isn't going to get me to do this. Um, one of the things people talk about is the uncertainty in climate models. It's a big argument. What's interesting is that really the big difference between things is uncertainty and what the scenarios will be. That's bigger than the uncertainty in the models. Now, IPCC made one other run, and it's particularly interesting for us here. Um, it's this yellow run that they made. Um, in this run, what they did was they held everything constant. They said, let's cut emissions and keep the CO2, the nitrous oxide, all these other things constant, including let's keep sulfate aerosols constant, okay? Well, that's very interesting, but to cut CO2 emissions and enough to keep it constant, you probably have to cut emissions by 85 or 90 percent. So that would make you think that the SO2 emissions associated with coal would go down 80 or 90 percent. And the, the lifetime of the sulfate aerosols is only a week or two. And so that means you'd get a 90% drop in aerosols instead of holding it constant. So you'd have a constant CO2 concentration, but the sulfate loading would go down by 90% and not stay constant. So this is actually, I would argue, um, a geoengineering run. This is what happens if you could get all the emissions down enough to keep the gases the same, but you were adding back in enough SO2 to, to create this one or one and a half watt per meter squared cooling of sulfur, of sulfate. So that's sort of a sulfate offset uh, that occurs. And without that, and there have been some model runs of, of doing that, of going to sort of zero emissions, you get a jump in the temperature because the sulfate's keeping it cool. Um, so I'm going to work through this. Uh, this is just sort of choosing one of these charts that continues out to 2300 to a relatively high uh, temperature increase. Those ones went three or four degrees. This, you only really need the first digit here. So this is sort of where we are observed. We're headed up dramatically. You could go up a great deal if you didn't have any controls. This is sort of A2 and, and keep going. And I'm going to use this as a reference trying to do various things to it to get it down to um, what one might call a safe level. So with the impacts going that high, I mean, how low do we want to get? If you look at the kinds of impacts we're going to get from climate change because of CO2 and temperature, precip, sea level, there are a whole set of large categories of impacts. Because fossil fuels provide 80% of the world's energy, you're not going to give up CO2 and fossil fuels just because of sm some small little one. So where are the big things? Well, you can have big health impacts, agricultural impacts, some benefits in some places for a little bit, but agricultural impacts, forest and land cover impacts, water resources, coastal, because of sea level rise, uh, and uh, ocean acidification, um, some ecosystem impacts, and a lot of societal impacts. And some of these are happening, many of them are happening right now. It's on the Arctic assessment, and the societal impacts up there are large. So IPCC put together this sort of diagram, a burning embers diagram. As you get hotter, it gets brighter. Um, and uh, what's been suggested is we're going to take two degrees. So you're going to have some uh, kinds of failing crops. You're going to have other things, small mountain glaciers and stuff. Uh, there is this notion here, uh, in this case, though, on the sea level rise ones, that it's not going to occur until you get much warmer. And we'll come back to that later. But in essence, what has been done is to sort of say choose two degrees. Some people would say I want it different. Um, you know, I think Jim Hansen wants to go back to 350, which would be somewhere less than a degree, um, because you want to be back before the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets started losing mass, for example. 
Um, all right, so let's take this chart again. We'll put in, a, I put it in at one and a half. You can do a two. You'd like to keep down in there this way. You don't want to get up to two if that's a dangerous level that will cause big impacts. Um, so I got a lot of cutting to do to get rid of the equivalent of all of this. Um, now, uh, one of my colleagues made a comment after hearing at this stage, it looks so helpless, um, that is there really anything we can do? What can we do? And she went home and was talking to her daughter and was feeling very down and everything and said all these terrible things. And her daughter finally said, you can't take away my hope and so for, the, for future generations. And so is there a path through? Can we find a way to, to do that? Um, this is a diagram originally from Ken Caldera, but he sort of says, let's think about the different places we can intervene. Um, so between desire for improved living and demand for goods and services, you can think of conservation, so do, getting by with less. Um, you can think of efficiency, which is getting more of these goods for less energy, so you're not demanding as much energy. Uh, you can think about changing how you get energy, so you're not creating emissions of CO2. So this is the traditional one of going to renewables or solar or other things, but efficiency is important as well. Okay, so then what, what happens? Well, gee, if I could take some of the CO2 out of the atmosphere, that would be a good thing to do. So that's sort of the carbon dioxide removal. That's one way to intervene um, after they've gone in. If I can make it so the high concentrations in the atmosphere don't cause big climate effects, that's the notion of solar radiation management we'll come back to. Uh, the other thing is, well, it's going to happen, and so you're just going to have to figure out how to deal with it. So that's adaptation, and there are questions about what the limits are to this. Uh, I mean, people will survive, but what happens to societies in various ways? And then, as John Holdren likes to say, if you get past that, then you end up with suffering. Uh, so there's sort of this circle of places to try and go after things. So let's talk first about what you can do with respect to uh, cutting emissions. So the first three categories in some sense, a lot can be done. There's sort of these several cons uh, you know, components of it, conservation and efficiency and then mitigation uh, by going to non-carbon fuels. Um, now there's actually two parts to this I want to talk about because it's really important and it's sort of just starting to emerge as something. One is to get rid of the emissions of the long-lived species. So that's really intended to, lim to limit the long-term warming and most people have focused on CO2 and there's a new NRC report on climate stabilization levels that talks almost exclusively about this. Ignore the short-lived species and focus on CO2. That's what you want to do because the short-lived species will go away. Um, and so if you look at trying to do this with uh, these various species, um, so we're sort of here and we're going along and we're going to have some various scenarios with emissions reductions, it's really hard to get, um, I mean you can try and cut emissions or something here, um, it's hard to change the CO2 concentrations very much by doing that. Um, and the, the temperature keeps going up. And you see the only way you start getting temperature to sort of come back down is the green curve, which is 100% emissions reductions. So, um, you know, starting pretty early and trying to, to do it. In fact, if you listen on the Hill to the comments that the skeptics are making, they're saying cutting CO2 emissions will have 
an infinitesimal difference on temperature change in 2050. That it's a long time to turn the curve over there. And so the legislators hear this and say, well, gee, I'm only up for, you know, my term's only uh, two years or six years. I can put it off. And there's this great tendency to put it off because if you focus on CO2, it sort of looks hopeless or, or at least long term kind of thing. Um, now, you can also look at short lived species. And this is a point um, I got into because I was on a UN commission to do a report for the, their Commission on Sustainable Development, a, a panel I was on. Um, and uh, the head of the mitigation chapter was John Holdren, so now our science advisor. And his view was this is a CO2 problem. And at the time, so it was like five or six years ago, I was, I was in charge of the climate panel and trying to get Jim Hansen to join us. And Jim was saying this is a methane and soot problem. And I was saying, these are two bright people. What in the world is going on? How come they're coming to different conclusions? Um, and so I sort of started looking at, at that. And the difference really is between the long-lived and the short-lived species. Um, Jim has now switched and is focused on coal emissions primarily, but, but others at GIFs are focused on short-lived species. Um, and so I went to Wigley's model and did a calculation, um, did some calculations of forcing. So this is radiative forcing um, multiplied by three quarters or so when you get the temperature change. All right, so what I uh, basically did was look for the, I didn't put in here the 20th century one, but it's a lot of it's CO2, there's some other things. But if you sort of say, I'm gonna cut off the emissions in the year 2000, or the first decade of the century, and I'm gonna see what I have left. Let's assume I can go to zero emissions of greenhouse gases. Well, the CO2 sort of peaks and then it, it drops away. But the, the main drop off, I mean, I should, say, I should have had the other plot. CO2 is sort of here and everything. What drops away is the methane and the black carbon. Black carbon, if you take it out, it'll be gone in a week or two, except for the albedo effect. Uh, methane will be gone in a decade or two. Um, and so those, go, those forcings go away, and what you're left with is a long legacy of, of CO2 emissions from the past. Okay, so now let's add in emissions planned for the 21st century and see what they contribute to forcing. So during the 21st century, okay, so let's add in first the CO2 emissions. And so if you had emissions of nothing else, but you just add in, in CO2, this is CO2. So it's a large component. But if you add in the methane and the ozone, they also, because forcing is sort of an integral of this, are also large components. And CO2 ends up, so, so for emissions during the 21st century, which you th are ones you think you might be able to control, CO2 is contributing only half of the added forcing. And these other ones are contributing the other half. Um, now, CO2, with its long lifetime, goes out a very long time, so it's very important. So I don't want to minimize this importance. But if you want to do something to forcing during the 21st century, you want to go, you have to do something about these things. You can't just let them go online. I mean, I was asked, when I was showing some of this at, a, at a, the Copenhagen Science Meeting a couple of years ago, I got asked the question. It says, well, why should we control the, uh, well, in fact, let me add black carbon in that say. So black carbon, arguably, is something comparable to methane. If you take Raman Athens view, it might be a little less for others. but. Let me add that on. But I got asked this question, why should I worry about reducing black carbon emissions till 2099? Okay, I mean, 
And it turns out the Energy Modeling Forum, which is the group that does these integrated assessment models, ran a case. I think it's EMF 22 that their study did. And they optimized energy development and technologies through the 21st century by saying you have to return to a metric of a, a certain uh, radiative forcing in the year 2100. Well, if that's your metric, then why would I control black carbon until I get to 2099.9? Because if I use a discount rate and everything, I'll be able to control it instantly. It'll be gone in 2100, okay? And with methane, they let methane just shoot up. I don't care about methane until 2080. And it went, in some of the models, it went way higher than its present concentration, and then they brought it back down. Because if I have a discount rate, I can do that cheaply in the future. They had taken the wrong metric instead of looking over time. So this issue on short-lived species is to get rid of the black carbon, get rid of the ozone, get rid of the methane. Now, I should say there's also a sulfate that I haven't shown on here, which is maybe a bit larger than black carbon and of opposite sign that's doing a, an offset. So it would sort of mean the net is somewhere down here, but I'm not showing that in this plot. Okay, so there's been a, finally, um, after, I mean, I put a paper out on one of my things, but they finally got around to doing one. UNEP, which has been funding a lot of Raman Athens and other research, and WMO just put out um, an assessment. All it's out, I think, at the moment is the summary for decision makers, but it's a very interesting diagram, and they talk about going after a number of methane, readily accessible methane and black carbon sources, and this is sort of their summary temperature diagram, so here are the observations. What about the future? Well, the green is the reference if you don't do anything. That's the curve I sort of have on the other chart. It's going up to, you know, three degrees and beyond or something like that. Okay, if I control CO2, which is what we're typically talking about, it's this maroon curve, and what you see is even if you start controlling early, you don't get much effect out until the middle of the century, and you're maybe at the dangerous level of two degrees or something beyond. So CO2 alone doesn't really do much as measures. If you do just the CO2 and methane, I mean just the methane ones and, and black carbon, what you see is over the next few decades, you work to about a half a degree below the projected curve. And so by 2050, you would have half a degree or something if you can get focus on those kinds of things. And they're not doing a dramatic program. These are all identified things, cleaning up cook stoves and brick ovens and a whole bunch of other things. All doable, all beneficial for other reasons, for health reasons and other things. And then if you do both, my heavens, you actually have a chance at staying under the 2C here. Now, this all depends on the sulfate sort of staying around, but which is an issue for us in geoengineering. So um, if you go after these things, I mean, if you want to have a program to actually get through and make some success on greenhouse gases, um, you have to go after the CO2 for, to cut the long-term effect. So that's the legacy one. So we have to get that down. We've got to do it as fast as we can. Developed nations need to demonstrate it's possible. You're going to have a modern economy that prospers on low CO2. You've got to get rid of deforestation in the developing nations, and maybe you can try and phase into scrubbing at some time to try and make sure you don't get ocean acidification or something. But you also want to slow the rate in the next several decades, that how fast you approach to equilibrium. And um, I, don't, I have a curve, but I didn't put it in this talk, where it shows that if you don't go after these, you basically overshoot and then come back down and stuff. But you go after methane emissions, and that saves energy, reduces air pollution. You go after the pollutant emissions that lead to, to air pollution. You go after black carbon. 
And most of the developing countries are doing this already. Now, we can't just say they should do it, because it turns out per capita black carbon is about as high as the US as it is for the world. Um, we have black carbon from diesel, for example, that we ought to be really going after. But um, there are, you really need a two-part program. Whether Washington and decision makers can think about two parts, I don't know. But we're going to add a third or fourth part as well. Okay, so if you do that, um, if you do all that people talk about, maybe you can stabilize at 550 parts per million CO2 equivalent. And if you do that, that maybe keeps you at, at three degrees. Um, I mean, you can have a sulfate offset that'll keep it a little bit cooler here. So um, if you keep up SO2 emissions, it's not clear quite how you do that without geoengineering. But you end up with some number. You don't get down to this one and a half. Okay, so what's the, now what do we do? All right, so well, let's go on to this next step. Let's see what we can do with carbon dioxide removal. So there's another try to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. There's sort of two general approaches for that. Enhance natural sinks, expand forests, uh, help regrow forests or improve carbon in soil. And there are a whole bunch of ideas for how to do this. I'm not going into details, maybe somebody will. And the other is scrub CO2 from the atmosphere by industrial processes. Um, this sounds nice. The only trouble, of course, is if you, it's hard to do in a power plant right now where the CO2 concentration is 10%. And if you're going to do it from the atmosphere, you have to do it where it's 0.04%. Um, you may be able to do that in some regions where you can get renewable electricity easily, the center of Australia, and you have some place to sequester it. But it's kind of hard to see how you're going to do that. And I guess, in my view, it only well, well uh, let me go on and sort of give a sense of, uh, so I mentioned, I guess I mentioned these ones. I mean, there's some various approaches, reforestation, gathering of biomass, and sequestering on the ground. Some people talk about it's biochar, uh, using biofuels with CO2 and capturing it in power plants and, and putting it down. Enhancing ocean uptake, which can be fertilizing of the ocean, scrubbing CO2 from the atmosphere. But it's going to be hard to do. Um, but let's talk about magnitudes again. And you can sort of forget this. Re realize that when you talk to the public or negotiators, they multiply everything to get millions of tons instead of billions of tons. And they want CO2. So you have to multiply by, you know, to get a big number by almost 4,000. But, but anyway, OK, fossil fuel emissions are 8 or 9 billion tons of carbon deforestation, maybe 1 or 2. Um, if you look at the standing bi biomass above ground, it's maybe 600. OK, so if we're putting out 8 or 9 or 10 per year for a century, now let's say we're putting out 10 for 100 years, that's 1,000. So I'm clearly not going to get it all into standing biomass. I mean, that would have to more than double above ground biomass or something like that. I mean, that's just there's no room for it or land for it. So it's hard to do. You can make a difference here. Um, people have talked about optimal, optimal ways of fertilizing the ocean, finding where the nutrients are. There may be ecosystem effects. It may not get the carbon to the deep ocean, other things. But even the maximum is maybe one. Reforest and afforestation, if you can get one per year or maybe a few, you'd be lucky. Carbon scrubbing, that's a pretty big industrial process if you do it. So let's just, you know, we'll take the upper limits and be really generous and say, I'll get four. Um, that's a lot. If you do that, and you can do that, maybe you can take off some of this gap that existed by carbon dioxide removal. Um, it's going to be hard, but maybe you can get some of that off. Um, and so you're sort of left with this being the temperature increase, still going above what might be called this dangerous level. Um, 
And so then you say, well, along the, and, and, and that dangerous level, by the way, that one and a half or something, that assumes adaptation works and I'll tolerate the suffering. So I don't have any more resources up here. So the one that's left is solar radiation management. And you say, well, maybe this is kind of what I have to deal with. Um, it isn't a f equivalent to a full two times CO2 reversal or something, but it is something and it's significant and it goes up and it would phase out over time presumably so you don't carry it on for generations. I mean if you don't do mitigation and you have to do this much, um, you know, that's more than a CO2 doubling, then you're going to have huge kinds of impacts. But maybe I can get by with something less. So those, you know, something less, the general attempt is pretend you're a volcano, um, you know, an effective volcano, a large volcano and block solar radiation. We know that opacity goes up, temperature seems to go down, the idea works. But why it works isn't completely clear, it seems to me. Um, this is the, the radiative forcing through the season by latitude for a CO2 doubling. So it's about four watts per meter squared spread over the globe pretty evenly. And if you're going to take away solar radiation management um, and you want this four watts per meter averaged over the globe, this is sort of what it looks like. And so it's a bit strange. I mean, you're dealing with a problem that has a very different latitudinal and seasonal pattern. And is this going to match this? Um, and there are a number of questions about why it should or why it shouldn't. Um, so what's been done, and I think Manabe did it first 30 years ago or something, um, is to basically run two times CO2. You get emphasis in high latitudes, less in low latitudes, where m much of the extra energy goes into water, evaporating water vapor, and you get downpours and other kinds of things. Um, and, and if you do it, you reduce it 1.8%, you sort of get back to near zero. Um, Interestingly, that also happens for the change in precipitation, um, that you get down to some sort of random scattered pattern sort of, of doing it. There isn't a big systematic thing. There are a few places maybe there's some. Um, it's kind of strange that this should work. Um, you know, you, if you look on it, and it turns out to work in different latitude bands and different seasons too. So. Uh, the red is a CO2 in the winter, and, the, and then this, and this is, uh, let's see, I'm sorry. Got to make sure. Okay, so this, this is high latitude, and this is winter and summer, and then here's where you get for the geoengineered effects. You get back near to zero. Now, it's really strange that this should work, it seems to me, because, uh, and, and I don't think we have a, a good answer to it, is... Uh, because the ice age cycling was created by just redistributing energy around the Earth. I mean, over the annual cycle, there is no net difference in solar radiation coming in at the top of the atmosphere. All, we, all that happens is the orbit changes, and you get more in the southern hemisphere summer or winter or something, and you change things around, and that caused the largest climate change we've had in certainly the last tens of millions of years. So redistributing solar energy, which is what was sort of done, whoops, Back, which is what we're going to do back here if we were to reverse this, in the past causes changes all over the planet in ice age cycling. Um, this is a, you know, there's interesting arguments here. Some of Lindzen's comments about why the climate sensitivity is low here but is not low for ice age cycling 
has to do with the redistribution of energy argument, something like that. Whether you believe it or not, that's the kind of thing. So, but okay, I, I don't either. But, but uh, yeah, but but I mean it all. But you know, the other thing is we have right now the sulfate forcing is also sort of has great seasonal variability and latitudinal variability, and so. One of the interesting things to look at in a research sense is to understand how these different forcings create things the same. Now, I think Ken Caldera and others have argued that the Arctic region has some inertia that it provides through the ice and the, and the waters, and so that may be doing it, but it's really kind of an interesting thing. All right, so uh, let's just sort of summarize some of the differences between these two approaches. They're very different. I mean, carbon dioxide removal addresses the cause of the problem. Solar radiation management is sort of, well, I'm going to do something else to try and limit it. So it's going from, you know, this is trying to get down to doing nothing, you know, having no net effect on the planet by going to zero. This is by saying I'm going to have a plus one and a minus one or something. Um, this response turns out to take many decades to do much. It takes a long time, whereas a volcanic intervention or reducing solar radiation has a relatively rapid effect. Uh, Taking CO2 out of the atmosphere requires something like an infrastructure the size of putting it in, um, where it looks like you can put sulfur into the stratosphere, for example, relatively inexpensively. Um, I mean, this has a slow onset of a, effect, and this, this can offset a lot of warming. This really takes a, a long time to do it. Um, there's relatively few side effects. I mean, you're basically saying, I'm not going to create the problem. so. the not clear you have side effects or you have potentially significant ones with what you're doing to the, to the climate. Um, this can be undertaken basically anywhere. You probably don't have many governance problems on it. Here, if you're going to do something internationally, you have to figure out how to get international agreement. Um, this can be sort of ended quickly. Uh, this can be ended, but if you end it, you return. And so you get the return forcing. So you probably have to sustain it for a very long time. So there's a whole host of differences. Um, I'm going to go through just to highlight a few of the ideas about how you might reduce sunlight. Um, one of the earliest proposed, well, there were ones about volcanic aerosol and sulfate in the stratosphere, but one uh, starting furthest in space maybe, if you could put a satellite or a, a deflector of solar radiation or mirror at the Lagrange point, so one point, whatever, six million, five million kilometers toward the sun, um, you know, it would just make the sun look slightly dimmer. That would have very few likely side effects. Um, that would have relatively few side effects, uh, but it would be rather expensive to do. You have to get something up there. Jim Early was the first one to propose it, and I think, and, and work it out. And uh, it required launch, getting something up there, a deflector, so maybe a Fresnel lens of some kind, 1,400 kilometers in, to offset CO2 doubling, 1,400 kilometers in di diameter, and the cheapest way you could figure it was manufacturer, manufacturing plant on the moon. So a lot of upfront costs on that one to do anything. Um, you know, Angel has proposed another approach, which is electromagnetic launches of stuff from the surface that are little paracells, about a meter in diameter, and getting them up there and have them sort of fly in the solar wind. But again, it's a pretty expensive kind of notion. Um, the National Academy in 1992, um, in its report, actually had an appendix that went over the approaches that were thought of at that time. And to reflect uh, sort of about 2% of solar radiation, you basically have to cover the Earth, 2% of the Earth, with satellites to do it, okay? 
And if you do a calculation, that's like 55,000 mirrors, each 100 square kilometers, so 10 by 10. Um, you know, and you'd have all these mini eclipses occurring and a whole bunch of other things. I mean, engineering is just sound out of the question. Okay, so they also then looked at, well, let's really try thinking about imitating a volcano. And it turns out there are a number of potential ways to get SO2 into the stratosphere that have been suggested. Um, this host of the stratosphere idea is mainly to give you a sense of the volume. It isn't all that much if you were going to do it. If you could hold a hose up there that or a few fire hose sized kinds of things up there with balloons or something and pump SO2 through it and that led to sulfate spread over the earth, which is another question. But, but if you could do it, uh, I mean, that's about all it takes or something. The Academy's one was firing um, artillery shells from low-latitude islands, you want to get it up in the stratosphere, and the idea was the stratosphere circulates from low-latitudes to high-latitudes, so do it at low-latitudes on some island, uh, shoot it up there, 1,000 kilogram shells, I guess it was, of sulfur, um, and it came out and they're costing to the equivalent of like $5 per ton of controls or something, I mean per ton for CO2 controls, which is a few percent of what people are talking about you have to do for mitigation. So. It was relatively low. People are looking at can you use existing aircraft or can you use specially designed aircraft to carry it up there, dispense it over time. There are questions that will come up here about what you put in and whether you get sulfates and other things. But these are just sort of ideas for la launching it. There have been all kinds of crazy ideas, you know, launch it with a nuclear explosion in a volcano or something like that. But, uh, you know, and, and there were ideas about balloons floating in there or something like that. Um, the, the sort of interesting one about this point is that sulfate up there with volcanoes turns out to scatter a lot of radiation. And so one of the downsides is the scattering of the radiation that occurs. When, the, when Sandia was building the first solar power tower out at Barstow, they, uh, it was 1983, I guess it was, um, they designed it to really show DOE what could be done. I don't remember if Battelle or not was doing it. No, Sandy, I guess it was. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so it was 110% of specs or something like that. And they turned it on and it came in at 80%. And they came over to us at Livermore and said, well, we know the El Chichon volcano went off and we've got this solar monitor out there and we're measuring and the radiation only dropped 2%. And we asked them what kind of solar monitor they had. And what they had was a total sky radiation monitor. Well, when you have a mirror-based system, you need direct radiation. And if you went, if, you know, we said, go get the $600 instrument or whatever it was at the time. And they did that, and they found that the, the direct radiation had dropped by 25%. So direct radiation drops of order 10 times as much as direct radiation. Um, and so that's a really serious issue, a serious impact. You're going to turn the sky more whitish, you'll have problems with solar energy. So, so you do have to be very careful and thoughtful about what you're doing. The idea for the balloons was to try and get around that in some way. Um, um, and this was Teller's idea when he sort of entered into it, was if you could make a balloon that was all dimpled services with in, internal squares, it would be like the corner of a, of a handball court or a, Rackable court where you throw a ball in and it comes out the same way. So a photon goes in and it comes back out the same way. And so you wouldn't be scattering so much radiation. You still do get some, but you wouldn't be scattering as much radiation. Of course, you have to keep them up there, and there's trillions of them that you'd have to have or more. 
that you'd have to have floating, and then how long do they last as mylar, how do you get them down, a whole bunch of other things. So there are a whole bunch of issues, but there are people who want to do things, and there was actually a patent in the 1980s for a type of metallic material um, that talked about, that had less diffuse radiation, it was supposed to be a better reflector. Um, so, of course, I don't remember what the cost was. All right, so let's say you put it in. Alan Robach's done some interesting calculations about that. This is sort of, and he'll talk a lot about it. This is the past record. Red is sort of if you go up with uh, anthropogenic forcing. And then he put in a couple of things. So he put in a, he put in pinatubo kind of level things, or two pinatubo kind of things, I guess, or a high latitude Arctic thing just in the Arctic to get at solar radiation up there. I'll come back to that later. But you can get a relatively rapid effect. Um, and then you want to ha you have to keep it. If you stop it, there's this issue of, well, I haven't taken the greenhouse gases out, and so I'm going to go back up to that level relatively quickly. Um, and so you can, you can have an effect that you've got to decide how you want to control it. I mean, I guess I, I would say the a normal, more policy thing was I'd, I'd try and keep the temperature as it is. So you'd start up with some and then grow over time. But, but nonetheless, this is all an issue. Um, there are also some tro things to think about in the troposphere. The reason we go to the stratosphere, or we talk about going to the stratosphere, is um, the lifetime of sulfate up there is a couple of years, as opposed to in the lower atmosphere, it's a week or two. So you gain a factor of 100. And you can put a, you know, a factor of 100 less in the upper atmosphere to do it. And that's aside from the issue of clouds. So there's some real advantages to putting it up high. But we do, from the sulfur dioxide that's emitted right now, get a current cooling influence. And it gets it in clear and cloudy skies. Um, but as I say, the sulfate lifetime is less. So you're going to have to put more in there. So you have to think about what you're doing. There's another approach which is saying, well, I'm going to try and imitate what I see from satellites. That is the sort of contrails that are created in marine stratus clouds by the diesel exhaust of the ships going underneath. They put up additional cloud condensation nuclei, and those tend to make the clouds brighter. The lifetime is somewhere between hours and days um, and to be sort of determined. But you can have an important effect. There's a lot of marine stratus around, and so you can brighten the clouds, and they don't look all that much brighter to people. But it, it turns out by raising the, the cloud albedo um, out over the ocean and, and stuff. Um, you can make it brighter and get less heat absorbed, increase the planet albedo. There are people who have talked about doing it at the surface. Um, there are people about, who talk about whitening cities, painting roofs white. Cities are such a small area, that's hard to do. Uh, roadways is kind of hard to do uh, and do it. Um, there are now, this, as I say, has a lifetime of a few days. So if you have an ill effect, you can stop it. This has a lifetime that's short. Stratospheric aerosol has a lifetime of a year or two, so you could stop it. If you were to do what some people talk about, genetically changing vegetation, that's something that would last a long time. That would be a rather big effect if you were going to do it. So that's a, that has sort of a different time scale. Um, there are people who have talked about increasing reflectivity of the ocean surface. Um, floating reflectors, if you do a calculation, you need something like the size of a continent floating on the Pacific Ocean to do enough to get the total energy. Um, the interesting new one is to sort of imitate a ship wake, which is to try and put very small bubbles out there to try and brighten the surface. It's sort of like clouds in the ocean water. And you could do it not just over the oceans, but you could do it in reservoirs and lakes. 
and that would actually, when, if you do it over in those kind of systems where there's a lot of evaporation occurring, um, it might cut the rate of evaporation, and that's sort of being people looking at that kind of thing. But it's hard to conceive how you do that globally because bubbles may have a lifetime of a few days. Um, this is just to give a sense of what the idea is for the cloud brightening. This is sort of a clipper-sized ship with these masts um, that are actually sails. Um, they're called Flettner rotors. By rotating, they create a differential uh, wind speed on the two sides, which creates a differential pressure, just like the wing of an airplane, and that propels the boat through the water. Um, just by spinning these things, they then drive a turbine and spray out uh, this mist of, of sm uh, what becomes CCN, cloud condensation. And this sort of atmospheric turbulence mixes them up into marine stratus clouds. Those don't look quite like marine stratus clouds, but anyway, they, they uh, mix it up there and make them brighter. Um, it's interesting if you, if you add up the total amount of water that would be pumped to do something significant, it's about the amount of water that is pumped through the Bellagio fountains in Las Vegas, but you're putting it out as a very small mist. And we're all waiting for the environmental impact statement for spraying water, that much water in the air causing global climate change, but we'll see what happens. Um, Ken's put together sort of a, a sense of some of the issues from space to the surface and what you might do on whether things are the best being blue about various issues or red being the worst. Um, and, you know, I mean, like space has some of the best things. It has scalability and it will probably have little side effects, which he doesn't have here. Governance and costs are huge um, and stuff. So. Stratospheric aerosols have some benefits. You can do it quickly. It's scalable and stuff. You probably have some risks and stuff. Governance, you probably need international agreement on that kind of thing. That's a real challenge. Cloud albedo approaches are sort of in the middle on all things, uh, assuming they work and things work as they expect. Land albedo can be a real problem. There's land is limited uh, in very many ways, and oceans would have similar kinds of a few red kind of things here. Um, so um, those are all global ones. One of the, what I've been advocating is uh, before you take a step to global, uh, are there things we can do about things about key impacts? Um, are there particular severe impacts that I can try and reverse? This doesn't solve the whole problem, but are there ways to take the technologies we have and try and apply them to some kinds of critical problems? There's been a lot of discussion about trying to limit Arctic warming because the people up there would say they have an emergency or dangerous situation right now. Um, can you do something to moderate intensification of tropical cyclones? There's some sense that as you get waters warmer and more water vapor, you're going to intensify the cyclones that you get. Um, can you shift some storm tracks? I'll comment on that in just a moment. Um, can you, could you replace the sulfate offset, the cooling offset, in some different way? Could you do something about ice streams? And you can list other ones. I have other ideas too, but we need to sort of look at it. Let me just say something about the Arctic. There was an Arctic assessment. It shows things are already happening. You know, the poor indigenous peoples who live on these barrier islands that are frozen ice, they're sort of permafrost things. You take away the sea ice, the winter waves whip up and they sort of eat away the islands. There's 160 or so villages that have to be moved. Average cost estimated by government accountability offices, a half a million to a million dollars per person. Big expense to relocate whole villages. Um, you know, permafrost is melting, which can release methane, biodiversity effects. 
Um, I also try and tell people when I'm talking about the Arctic assessment about um, that it affects us. This is a, from The Onion, which is a Washington Humor magazine you've maybe seen. This was President Bush's policy for dealing with climate change in their view, was put an air conditioner at the border. But I, I use the diagram because the, the worst part is the well, it's coming in and something. Well, but the the uh, yeah, but the 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 issue is the Arctic is really the air conditioner for the northern hemisphere. It cools the air off, um, and North America is an interesting continent because it doesn't have an east-west mountain range like all the other continents, and so that polar air comes down here and the moist air comes up here, and you have these collisions, and that's what's caused all the tornadoes and our convective weather and everything. As you actually get less cold air coming out here, the moist air is going to push further north, and you're going to get changes in the seasonality and maybe the location of precipitation. I mean, when they get two feet of snow in North Dakota, where does that moisture come from? It doesn't make it over the Rockies. I don't think it's making it up from here, from the, from the Gulf. And then when it melts, you get all the runoff, and you get all kinds of things on land areas that aren't suited for it. Um, and I think it's, uh, this is my speculation, but I think it's also affecting what's happening down here. Um, this is from a couple years ago, but there's this big drought in the, the southeast. Um, if you've ever been to Atlanta, you know they don't have any shortage of humid air. Um, but what they have is a shortage, and what we've been having all up and down the east coast, I think in some of the midsummer months, at least in Washington and stuff, is, is a lack of the cool air and the cool fronts that come through and trigger the thunderstorms. They, they haven't, in my view, sort of been making it over the Appalachians. Well, there's all kinds of thunderstorms in the Ohio River Valley, but we went at July and August a couple years ago in Washington with no thunderstorms, which was really rare and strange. And so I think it's maybe changing. So in any case, the Arctic can affect us. Arctic air affects us. So are there things that you could do in the Arctic that would try and do something? Um, there would be a lot of benefits if you could. Sustain the sea ice, which helps a lot of migrating species and biodiversity. Sustain the river and coastal ice to get rid of er erosion. Rebuilding mountain glaciers, limiting permafrost warming, um, you know, keeping the mid-latitude weather, there are a lot of reasons. Okay, so uh, Ken Caldera and Clyde did some ex interesting modeling experiments, and this is just sort of schematic. They just reduced solar radiation. Alan actually put SO2 in and tried some things. But th this is a 10% reduction of radiation north of 61 or 25% north of 71. Uh, 71 sort of the northern edge of Alaska, so there aren't any people, I don't think, north of this. This gets just a few people, so if you were to do it somehow and could keep things constrained and a whole bunch of other things, um, you know, I mean, so there's feasibility and engineering issues, of course, but what, what would happen? Um, so this is sort of the experiment for the 61. Here's the two times CO2, and you reduce the solar radiation by that amount, and you basically have an effect up in the Arctic and down into mid-latitudes here. Uh, we're doing a bunch of studies looking at this in more detail with precipitation shifts and things like that. But, but you get that. And uh, so the interesting thing is, so the CO2, you get rid of the warming. You don't get rid of the increase in precipitation that is associated with 2 times CO2. That's because this evaporation for this precipitation is occurring at lower latitudes where you're not reducing the radiation. and so. That moisture still goes up into the Arctic, and you actually start building up the snow cover, which would be a great advantage if you could do it this way. You can talk, be a good thing to talk about. All right, um, so what can you do about tropical cyclones? Um, well, the ocean temperatures seem to be increasing in the areas where they're intensifying, so what you do is 
like to try and cool that water down. There is a, a patent proposal in from what, Nathan Meyerdahl and a whole bunch of people that, that uh, say I'll put something out and do water mixing in front of each storm. I think that's going to be kind of hard to do fast enough. But, but what if you could um, put out that cloud brightening thing over the Gulf of Mexico, for example, or some other area? Could you do that? Would that work? Um, that might be a way to approach it. Um, so, uh, you know, you basically go out and try and increase cloud albedo, or maybe you could increase surface albedo by, the, by bubbles or something. Uh, some people are doing, as I say, wave-driven pumps and things like that. Here, let me see. Okay, so what about this idea of storm tracks? Um, well, there are some areas that are drying out. Um, southwestern United States is predicted to dry out dramatically. Uh, southern Australia is sort of drying out. Um, what Namias noted way back in the 70s and stuff was the storm track coming onto California is determined in part by temperature gradients out in the Pacific Ocean of just a few degrees can help steer storms. I don't know if that's what does it out here, but the storm track does come across here and it's sort of shifting to the south. Um, would it be possible to use, for example, the cloud brightening approaches for the ships or the bubbling or something through the course of a year, maybe particular years when it sort of looks like it's going to be easier to change, to shift the storm tracks a little bit to try and make sure there's some precipitation going in these regions? Otherwise, I mean, the people call it a drought in Australia. They call it a drought in the southwest. They're being optimistic. It's not a drought. The Sahara isn't having a drought. This is climate change occurring, and they're going to end up permanently in that state. And that's rather dramatic. So you know, I think an interesting thing to do in Australia would be to find out what the experiences of the storm track and the temperatures out here and, and try and see if one could steer it. You're away from lots of other countries. It's not clear that changing temperature out here in the southern Indian Ocean is going to make a big difference to anybody else except maybe New Zealand. But, but uh, you know, would it be worth trying? Um, what about the S-sulfate offset? Uh, well, it's pretty large. Uh, I lose it. Now, I certainly don't want to do it where all the people are. Right now, we're, well, when we had it originally, it was coming from Europe. It was a high latitude. So part of the year, you're putting out all this SO2. It wasn't having any effect on solar. It's a little bit better when you're putting it out from China because you're a little bit lower latitude. Um, but there are a lot of people there. So why, instead of having a sulfate offset that's basically a lot of sulfate in a relatively confined area, why not try and, ha and coming out from power plants, why not take the sulfur and spread it out to a thin amount over the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean or someplace, big oceanic area. So a little bit over a large area instead of a lot over a little area. Um, you know, would, would, that would that work? Would doing something else work. I mean, you could brighten clouds or something, or maybe cloud brightening would be, would be how you go after this. Uh, finally, um, we're losing these, we're losing ice from, from uh, Greenland at a surprising pace. Um, going back 10 years, at least, I think the traditional sense was that the most endangered ice sheet was the West Antarctic, which was grounded below sea level. And so the water could get at it, and Greenland was thought to be relatively stable. It's grounded above, above sea level, and the transfer of energy from air to water or into ice is a slow process. And that's why when, when uh, the UK Met Office ran their model for a few thousand years, it took 3,000 years or something to lose the ice. Um, a few years ago, though, 
a measurement was made of what the topography is under the ice sheet. And so blue here is below sea level. So Greenland is really an atoll, you know, it's sort of mountains around the edge and the inner is all below sea level. That might not be so bad if there weren't some fjords going through. So this is Jakobshavn, there's a couple others up here potentially. And this is where the ice streams are seen moving so fast and calving's going on. And this is basically let, lets water in to get at the ice sheet. Um, and so that's a pretty serious issue. Now, the sense I understand from oceanographers is that the water that's coming in and affecting the ice edge is sort of warmed to a few degrees out here in the Labrador Sea and these other areas, and then comes in underneath the sort of fresh water coming off and other things. So it's not, a, it's not surface water you would be able to cool here, but could you exert cooling by either marine stratus or the bubbling approach in the waters out over here and try and get this water colder again so you don't have that heat source to try and get in here? Or there are other ideas for trying to block fjords, but that's pretty hard to do. But can you do something here? I don't know, but with 21 feet of sea level potential here, I'd like to be thinking about something. Okay, um, and you know, as some studies have been done, um, you know, particularly here looking at it, IPCC had these you know slow estimates of sea level rise, and yet I think if you include dynamics, the large term they left off suggests that it's going to be much more rapid than than IPCC was suggesting. But that's another story. Um, so there's a whole range of approaches. Um, of various kinds. Uh, this sort of is a schematic of a lot of them. Some have different costs, some are easier, some are less well. You can sort of look at the schemes. And, and the question is how to try and figure out out of this, is there a sensible contribution to policy in all of this? Uh, right now where we are is uh, business as usual would take us by 2100 by some estimates up to almost five degrees over the the pre-industrial, all the proposals, if the countries live up to them, would get it, maybe save a degree. Um, we need to be another two and a half degrees down if we're going to stay in this territory. So what are we going to do about that area? We certainly need a lot more mitigation, but do we also need that kind of solar engineering? So uh, you know, how do we think about it? But just realize there's no such thing as a free lunch in all of this. Uh, emissions reductions are going to be hard to get 80 to 90 percent down. There's a lot of impacts and consequences that are going to be hard to deal with. There's going to be a lot of suffering. Uh, carbon dioxide removal is pretty slow and expensive. Solar radiation management has the potential to counterbalance the warming, uh, but it also has some potential impacts to be looking at and be concerned about. So how do you make a policy out of all of this? Uh, realize also that there are treaties that either govern or may govern this. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change aims at the major gases. But there is something on the Convention on Prohibition of Military and Other Hostile Use of Environmental Modification Techniques that may apply, if you read the language, to some of the things like um, climate engineering. Um, some countries may consider it hostile or something. So uh, what happens? So you're, we're basically, as a society, left with a choice. I mean, do we? it isn't a choice, really, between doing geoengineering and not do, doing geoengineering. It's, it's going on with global warming without geoengineering or maybe doing climate engineering with global warming. I mean, you're not gonna, we're not having a discussion of it's climate engineering or not. I think it should be, a rel it's a relative risk approach about what to do it. So you're gonna have some impacts here. You're certainly gonna have some impacts here. 
we're using the same tools to project all of these different things, and so probably with the same level of confidence, if we do some more research, we can get a better sense of that. So it's really a choice that's going to be up to society to decide, but realize it's going to dramatically affect the choice we make. It will affect the natural environment and future generations. So it's a really complicated thing to do. So thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.